Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hi there, I'm Carla Nappi, and this is New Books in East Asian Studies. Welcome and thanks for joining us at the podcast today. I just spoke with Linda Ray Fung about her new book, City of Marvel and Transformation, Chang'an and Narratives of Experience in Tang Dynasty China. This came out in 2015 with the University of Hawaii Press. Now, this is a book that's very much full of marvels and full of transformations. It takes us into Tang Dynasty China and introduces us and really reintroduces us in a very new way to the city capital of Chang'an. Now, this was a space that was being remade and transformed in this period, thanks in part to a new way of construing the civil examination system that had candidates coming to the capital every single year to take the exam. Now, what that did is it transformed, as she shows, what travel was. It transformed the selfhoods, the experiences of time and space of these candidates that would come to the capital um, and experience and help make the city. It also transformed narratives of time and space and self and pleasure and desire and information in really fascinating ways. So the interview is fairly extensive, so I'll let you get to that in a moment. But what I want to do first is read to you from one page of Linda's book. It's a very beautifully written book. And I want to read to you the brief description of one of the tales that comes up in a lot of the chapters, almost all of the chapters, if not all of them, that we refer to repeatedly but don't talk too much about. And this is the tale of Li Wa. So I'm going to just read to you from page 17 of the introduction so that you know what this tale is about and and kind of what the deal is um, before you listen to it so that you can situate the conversation within this. So here goes, and this is Linda's words um, in the introduction of the book. This tale begins as a promising young tribute scholar, Zhang, leaves home for Chang'an. Once there, he becomes smitten with the eponymous, this is Li Wa, right? The eponymous courtesan moves in with her and depletes his fortune after two years. He's abandoned by Li Wa and her madam, but recovers from sickness and poverty by becoming a dirge singer with a funeral parlor, eventually winning a citywide singing competition. From this height, however, he plunges again. His father discovers his son's disgraceful livelihood and beats him nearly to death. Sinking to the nadir of his existence, the young man succumbs to begging on the streets of Chang'an. Before long, he's discovered in this state and is rescued by the self-same Li Wa, who nurses him back to physical and spiritual health. He then successfully obtains his degree and embarks on an illustrious official career while Li Wa ultimately assumes the role of his virtuous wife. 
Now, this is one of many, many stories um, that you are introduced to as a reader of this book. It's really just a fascinating um, foray into the narrative worlds of stories and storytelling in Chang'an. And with that, um, so now that you understand, hopefully, what the whole shape of the Liwa story is all about, I will leave you to the fabulous Linda talking about her fabulous book. But first, thank you so much um, for your support. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoy. I'm here today to talk to Linda Ray Fung about her new book, City of Marvel and Transformation, Chang'an and Narratives of Experience in Tang Dynasty China. Welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, Linda. Thanks for making time. Thanks for writing a beautiful book um, that's visually beautiful as well as narratively beautiful. And I'm really looking forward to talking to you today. Thank you, Carla. And I just want to say I'm an enthusiastic listener of your podcast, and it has been a wonderful experience for me to be involved with this um, conversation. Hey, well, thank you. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. So, Linda, let's get started, as is traditional for the channel, by talking a little bit about how you came to the field and specifically what brought you to work on Tang China. Um, so <laughs> I will preface my answer by saying that this, um, well, what I'm about to say only makes sense in retrospect, <laughs> because um, as we um, move through our studies, often we are just kind of, um, I know in my case, I'm just um, always searching and looking and um, and it doesn't make sense. The whole process doesn't really make sense until it's finished. <laughs> so um, um, I'll start by saying um, as an undergrad, there, there was a couple of moments that brought me to um, the field. Um, and probably one of the most important, um, I was a geochemistry um, major. <laughs> I was studying geochemistry. Um, and um, my undergraduate thesis advisor, um, Dick Holland, had um, brought us to actually brought us to Canada um, for a field trip, um, a research field trip, and um, one of the most memorable moments I um, I know from this trip was um, we would um, I, of course I'm not used to these trips where we look at the geological formations, some of the oldest geological formations in North America, really, um, and Dick Holland had this habit of stopping us um, on the side of the road with um, some kind of outcrop. And he would kind of fold his hands and turn to us um, and say um, and ask us this question, which is, so uh, what's the story here? Um, <laughs> he he never asked, you know, tell us about the stratigraphy of this formation, you know, explain the geological forces. No, he never did that. So he, he actually just said, what's the story here? Um, so um, I didn't know it at the time, but it was um, it was it was kind of his question that really opened up this kind of skylight in my in my intellectual world, because I had been very set on being a scientist um, as an undergrad um, I had come from a family of engineers, right? Um, and also, um, um, English was not my first language. Um, and even though I could speak it um, more or less fluently, I didn't feel that I could do things with language and with literature um, in you know, using English. <laughs> so, um, so Dick Holland's question got me 
um, again, this is only in retrospect that I realized this got me thinking about the importance of stories in um, not just, um, you know, as storytelling per se, but in, in many other aspects of our, our of our lives, including the scientific. Um, so <laughs> to make a long story short, um, um, years later, I was in grad school and um, uh, I had come to um, begin to think about um, doing a, long, a longer term project. And um, I had so to answer the question how I had come to uh, study Tang narratives, um, I had started uh, reading these uh, stories, I, I, for lack of a better term, that really just got me excited um, and um in the sense that they were um, they were short, um, and yet um, they were um, well. Let me just give you a particular example. Sure. Um, there's um, the, the the one story that stuck out in my mind was um, a story about um, a knight errant, a female knight errant um, from one of the late Tang collections um, that I, actually I talk about in my book, um, but. Um, there's a certain kind of playfulness um, that uh, in, in that story that made me think that stories like this could not really be reduced to any kind of universals or or moral um, sort of concepts that um, that are that are sort of easily categorized that could be easily categorized. Um, so to make a long story short, a combination of um, a geochemistry mentor um, who had got me thinking about the importance of sh- uh, stories and then uh, later readings in grad school um, really turned me on to this path. <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very circuitous path, but um, that's the way it often happens. Perfect. And listeners may or may not be aware that you are also um, a writer of really gorgeous, fabulous, um, fascinating fiction. So we won't talk about that in the details today, but I'll just, um, I just want to mark that and just say how, um, just how amazing it is for me to, to talk with you about that because you're, it's just always such a pleasure to talk with somebody who embodies the craft of writing um, and sure the beauty of that craft um, in here in so many different ways. And it really comes out in the writing of the book as well. So, so let's check out her fiction as well. (laughs) Thank you so much, Carla. So the book that we're talking about today is concerned with Chang'an and it's concerned with Chang'an as what you call a lived space. And so um, in the book, you call this a lived space that shaped aspirations and the production of text. You take us into narratives, including, um, and like the narrative that you just mentioned, that look at a series of different, um, really interesting issues. And I'll, I'll just name some of them. Um, and this is using, um, largely using the words of the book. You look at the role of the literatus as wayfarer. So travel um, is quite an important theme here. Um, you look at the interplay between literary prowess and sexual license. There's a whole chapter on pleasure quarters that we'll talk about. And also, um, you look at the possibilities for finding value and valuation outside of the normal channels, outside of the normal hierarchy. So there's a lot of work that these stories are doing um, to produce Chang'an as a lived space. 
and to help us understand the way Chang'an as a lived space helped produce selves, produced individuals, produced time, and ways of um, experiencing and making time, as well as producing space. So Linda, how did you come to focus on this? Um, and if you could say a little bit about how that focus shifted um, when you moved from focusing on this as a dissertation level project to then turning to transforming this city of transformations into a book <laughs> monograph. Um, yes. And so, again, this is one of those um, um, processes that only makes sense in retrospect, right? <laughs> because um, as we struggle through it um, or, or make our effort um, in real time, we often don't have that um, sort of overall Google <laughs> um, view of what we're doing. Um, so, um, so like I said, I had come to um, Tang narratives through just kind of the serendipitous um, realization that there are a lot of things about these narratives that are um, unruly in a, in a, in a wonderful way. Um, and that really requires um, thinking outside of um you know, what we think of as traditional bibliographic um, formats. Um, so um, my original dissertation was on um, the transformation process, the, the coming of age of um, literati writers. Um, and, um, and it had been um, initially... Um, focused on this story um, uh, called the story of uh, the tale of Liwa, mm -hmm. which I, I treat um, in the, in the, in the book. Um, and uh, it, because, you know, in a way this is, um, this is a story that embodies many of those, um, uh, many of those stages of this coming of age process. We have, um, we have a young man who is coming from the provinces into the capital. So from the peripheries um, into the center, um, of, of the empire um, and to participate in this really unprecedented um, event, uh, institution of recruitment that up until now um, it has, it, that, that during the Tang was really in the process of, of understanding itself, of, of, uh, in the process of forming itself and having names and having um, procedures. So, um, so we have this um, young man coming into the capital for this reason, and he immediately gets lost in this, um, in the in city and in the urban space. And, um, and so this is a story, um, as some of the listeners might already know, who are familiar with the story, but um, it's, it's a, it's a, Sort of roughly, we can think of it as a being lost in in the city and then becoming found. Um, um, the story of being lost and found. Um, so my my dissertation was structured around this process of getting of of orienting oneself, um, of of elevating oneself through the. Um, process of passing the civil service examination um, in order to um, be ordained as a um, as a as a eligible statesman um, to be part to be eligible to participate in the in the empire's bureaucracy um, and so um, in the process of um, to answer your question about what happened uh, between the dissertation and the monograph um, was um, as I as, as, as I finished the dissertation, I realized that um, it, although I could still 
maintain this um, structure of of this coming of age um, through these narrative texts. Um, what really kind of began to grow inexorably in the dissertation was this one particular chapter about uh, about Chang'an as a city, as a, as a space um, in which um, all these processes of of coming of age, of transformation, um, of legitimation were unfolding. Um, so as this chapter grew um, and sort of wanted to claim um, more attention, um, I began to think of um, sort of reorienting the argument of, of, of what would be the future monograph in terms of um, Chang'an as a space. Um, so so in, in doing so, I had to um, accommodate some of the other um, uh, um, material um, within Chang'an itself, um, but that because the material is so rich and so multifaceted um, and takes on so many forms and genres, uh, it really was not a very difficult thing to do. So, so Chang'an was, in a way, Chang'an, as it was lived in the Tang, is capacious enough to allow um, dissertation, probably more than one dissertation, to be uh, to be contained within it. Um, and so, eventually, this is this was the path that I I, I started on. Fabulous. Thank you. Well, let's, let's keep going down that path and I get into the, get into the heart and the guts of the book. So the book um, itself, uh, I'll just mention for listeners, it's based on uh, a very widely interdisciplinary approach. Um, and in the introduction, listeners will find discussions of some of the major theoretical touchstones of the book, including Lefebvre on space, Desertot on everyday practices, Victor Turner on the liminal, and they'll also find a discussion of um, lots of the really interesting sources that were brought to bear in the making of the book, including letters and poems and epitaphs and narratives and, co- and all sorts of different collections, anecdotes. Um, the tale of Liwa, as you just mentioned, also plays a really important role here. Now, the larger context um, of these narratives, or one important part, rather, of the larger context of these narratives is also laid out in the introduction, and that's the context of the examination system. You call Chang An um, uh, sort of, uh, you say that it became a space of dislocation and relocation, kind of similar to what you've just been describing in the Tang Dynasty, largely because of the examination system. There was a kind of symbiosis, to borrow a uh, you know, scientific metaphor that I think mean, both of our background, I think we both started in scientists, um, but symbiosis between the exam system and the urban center in the tongue. And this is a period where annual exams were held in the capital. This was new. Um, and this was really important because examinees um, had to come live in the capital and travel to the capital. This happened every year. And so this um, really reshaped not only their experience of time and space, the way they were helping to make the space of the capital, but also their experiences um, and transformations of themselves. So this brings us really into um, the first chapter. Now, the first chapter looks at the second half of the Tang and the way that social and intellectual structures were really changing in the second half of the Tang. Now, these helped produce literary uh, or literati, rather, identities that were, um, in your words, capable of advancement and transformation. So this chapter explores the question, how did a man of letters become a man in full? 
Now, the chapter argues that the recruitment mechanism of Chang'an, the sort of examination system that's part of this, helped create, as you put it, a new period of social indeterminacy and a changing concept of the literati self that we find in Tang's stories. Okay, so I just laid the foundation. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) So one of the really interesting things that's happening in this chapter around these phenomena in this context I've just described um, is a changing way of creating and conceiving the name, right? The Ming. Ming, yeah. So um, can you talk a little bit about that? What's happening here that's important um, for you and for us to understand about the story around Ming and about, uh, you know, selfhood and, and reputation? Um, yeah, and thank you for that uh, <laughs> some wonderful summary. Um, so to go back to this institution of examinations, um, the civil service examinations, um, um, of course, we um, – so the, the, your question about Ming and, and indeterminacy and all these changes of, that, that are taking place during this time um, is is – kind of bound up in this relatively new institution of recruitment. And um, and we know that um, there have been wonderful work um, done um, on the history of the examination system um, and, and um, especially toward the later imperial eras. Um, but um, w- what I wanted to um, highlight is the fact that during the Tang, um, even though we had um, as far back as the, as the Han, um, uh, there have been um, avenues for advancement for um, for men of letters through recommendation and also through um, a sort of a, a, a earlier version of um, uh, of civil service recruitment. Um, nothing has nothing has come out of that um, at the scale and at the kind of um, uh, at the qualitative and quantitative level that we are seeing in the Tang, which which is to say, um, for the first time, um, there is this um, regularized, routinized, um, and relatively highly publicized um, avenue for um, theoretically for men of letters to um, to participate in the in, in the bureaucracy and to become. Um, a statesman to to serve um, as officials um, by virtue of again this is theoretical um, by virtue of having mastered um, literature um, and and this 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 or and, and a number of other curricula um, and if you think about it. Um, what um, this institution of examination um, is is uh, we know that this has been a very durable institution in, in throughout Chinese history. Um, it, it had lasted until the early twentieth century, um, and within this long, long history, um, what the, the kind of things that we think of um, or that we associate with the, the system, including the name Koji, um, are actually um, had had evolved after the Tang. So the Tang was a, a, um, occupies this peculiar prehistory in this long history of, of recruitment in that there are many things about the, the Tang recruitment system that would have become unrecognizable or just plain weird to, um, to later um, eras. Um, and so, um, and, and, I, and, and I, I, sometimes I think about this and I think, well, um, and, and this, this 
period in, during which um, a, a young man has um, finished his studies and he, like the protagonist in the tale of the Yuan, has finished his studies and has you know arrived in the capital ready to take the examination um, uh, this this period of what I'm calling the liminal uh, state the period of in social indeterminacy there's actually no parallel I can't really think of good parallel um, in in our life in, in modern life um, we can say well the university student <laughs> is kind of liminal um, but but not quite the same way in that um, and um, or, or you know or, or the the college entrance examination sometimes people will say is very akin to the civil service examination but that's not quite true either um, in the sense that um, either college education um, has a very sort of prescribed and definite interval. Um, we know that, well, for most people anyway, um, after four years or, you know, after eight, you know, whatever, however number of years, um, they will get a, a degree. Um, there's there's a, a definite, uh, you know, more or less prescribed end to it. Um, it, this interval that I'm talking about, in which someone is a is a is a is a is a, um, is a candidate uh, aspirant um, in in Tang Chang'an, um, theoretically there is no or practically there's no um, minimum or maximum length of time for that to for that interval to play itself out. So um, it could, it, you know, someone could succeed on his first try or um, as a case of many late Tang uh, uh, literati, they could be still trying um, in their 60s and 70s. And we have anecdotes that, that attest to that, that process. So um, it's this, um, there, so that there, there's this, curious period that um, that really defies sort of modern parallels in which um, they are and they're not um, sanctioned um, by uh, by virtue of their learning uh, they may and may not participate in the in, um, in, in the workings of the empire um, and um, and so so I think the um, the multitude of names and um, descriptions that are that have become a you know um, that have congregated a, a, around this period is testament to how how strange um, and also how fruitful that period is. So, so often we talk, uh, you know, in during this time, people talk about Chengming. So to have established or completed one's name as a um, uh, description for having, for passing the examinations. Um, and uh, there's um, also many other kinds of descriptions that mobilize Taoist Buddhist images um, of crossing a threshold. Um, so I talk about bianhua, this 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 term for trend, this really kind of catch-all term for transformation. Um, so. Uh, I guess all of the, all of this is is going to you know <laughs> toward your question of what does that mean? Um, the, the, I, I guess the the collective discourse is trying to understand um, through these different ways through language different kinds of language 
exactly what this means. And we see this in um, as textual traces in narratives, in poems, in social poems, in, in letters and exchanges, um, in how people um, complain about their fate and how people celebrate their um, uh, good fortune. Um, this, this, this idea of, of Ming being this new um, coveted stage of life that really has no parallel before um, this time. And this is, for me, one of the really, uh, one of many really fascinating things about what's happening in the book and in this part of the book in particular is I think we tend to, or I'll just speak for myself, right? (laughs) I tend to, when I think of a self and I think of an individual, I think of a um, a unit, right? An object. And Mm. what this chapter is really doing is showing us how, based on your really incisive and creative and thoughtful readings of these narratives that come out of this process, the self here. Um, is constantly in transformation, right? It's a deeply transformative experience. That is the experience of selfhood. Um, mm. and, and that's tied to, you know, the, the name as a, a process, right? The name is kind of aspirational, right? Mm-hmm. It's a process of trying to, to get your name, to complete your name. Time is also changing and experiences of time are changing um, in this uh, period along the lines of this process. And you talk about this in the chapter, you call it um, an emerging chronotype. Right. There's a sort of Mm. way of experiencing and and thinking about time that's tied to the processes that you've talked about, but also the exam calendar and the way that that shapes the space of Chang'an. There's also um, in terms of thinking about a self and the stories that make a self, um, there's a, a kind of narrative that comes out of this that you call the unbiography. (laughs) Right. And and trying to kind of, I think, emphasize for us the liminality of this self, the sort of nonlinear aspect of the self, the meandering um, without a singular destination um, way of thinking about this self. So what's an unbiography, Linda? Because that's an awesome term that I hope everyone who listens to this will use right now. Um, it's, it's actually hard to come up with a term that really does justice to this, what, what I'm trying to articulate. So I, I settled on that really by, by lack of anything better. Um, but, um, what I was trying to get at is that, um, in, in, uh, often when you read epitaphs that, um, that enumerate the, um, a, a life lived, um, uh, through the, the number of posts, um, this person, the deceased might have held, um, often, uh, the, you know, the, the year he, um, receives his Jingshu degree is mentioned and then the posts that, that come after that and how, um, you know, and of course, eventually chronologically goes to the point, his last post, his, you know, where, where he lived just before he, he died. Um, what what what's interesting uh of course um you know all of those information is you know and, and actually um not just information that 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 forms of articulation are interesting um so, sometimes we we read between the lines right we have to think about what was not mentioned um and i think of um I think, I think of the unbiography as those gaps, <laughs> those, uh, those, those texts that, that, the lines that are excised out of, uh, the first draft of the epitaph, right? Um, that, that, that could not be mentioned or are, are just, just not the right <laughs> form to be mentioned. Um, and, and yet they are, um, they are, th- th- 
they're the the meanderings and the the stumbles that that inform a lot of the, these narratives that I um, do spend time on in the book. Um, and again, the tale of Liwa is an example of a story that would not make it to the epitaph, would never make it to the epitaph, um, should not make it to the ep- epitaph, um, but um, but doesn't go away just because it cannot be contained in that form. Um, and the and oh, it's not going awayness plays itself out in in these um, more marginal genres of writing um, such as the anecdote and the and then uh, and the in the the the, the, the tongue tale um, and so uh, so what I wanted to um, accomplish with this unbiography is to to, to say um, let us pay attention to the blank spaces to the things that doesn't quite fit um, in the course of, of these literati lives. And so much of the book draws our attention to those things that don't quite fit, right? I mean, you just talk, we're talking about meanderings and stumbles. Um, and for me, one of the things that the book is very deeply about is about maybe changing um, our perception of Chang'an from this mappable, you know, imperially planned space where there's the walls and the grids and everything makes sense to um, a city of meanderings and stumbles, right? I mean, it's very much the case, at least in my reading um, experience of the book, that it's the meanderings and the stumbles that make the city, that make the lived experience of the city. And we have that um, coming out in the next couple of chapters in really beautiful detail. So after, um, so we we haven't even talked about um, some of the fabulous stories that have already been mentioned in chapter one uh, that we haven't talked about. (laughs) For listeners, there's this fabulous story of this guy who like, you know, eats and eats and eats and he's just got skinnier and skinnier and it turns (laughs) out like, you know, a bunch of foreigners and then they're called foreigners. I come to him and they're like, oh, you've got this like weird monster creature um, and you vomited up up and we'll give you lots of money and he does and the creature and they boil the creature but the creature doesn't die and these immortals come <laughs> and they're like pearls anyway it's fabulous it's in chapter one go read it um the story of lu yang and the flower devouring crawler and then we could spend the rest of the hour talking just about that because yes. it's fabulous um but we won't we will move on to travel okay, okay so meanderings and stumbles so um, as we move into the next couple of chapters of the book we move into chapters that look at um kind of meanderings through the city so the second chapter takes us into um, a kind of exploration of the ways that um, travel to and from Chang'an become routine, right, in the Tang, again, because of this larger examination system, and the city itself changes. Um, and as a result of this, um, their like, literati relationships with the city and with themselves also change. Now, you talk here about, um, again, to kind of emphasize the, um, the non-linearity of the city, the non-linearity of the development of selves, the non-linearity of these travels, you emphasize the importance of the um, peripheral, right, subsidiary journeys that come from and, and come along with the seemingly simple, straightforward journey to the capital. Can you talk about the importance of this, these um, kind of subsidiary journeys to the periphery that come out of narratives um, in this chapter. Um, yeah, uh, absolutely. The, um, so as, as we've mentioned, um, the, this annual, um, annually held examination, um, 
in, in the capital itself is something that that has um, has generated um, it has become this engine for um, routinized travel but I don't want to give the impression that um, that it's 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 a, it's a kind of routinized travel that that goes from point a to point B where point a is is home province uh, of a candidate and then point B is Chang'an. Um and even though there are um, as as I mentioned because the interval of success the the, the time before success um, the number of years takes to re- uh, attain a degree is in is indeterminate. Um, there are many repeated journeys. Um, it's not a singular straight arrow to the capital and back. And actually, uh, the flower attic story that you just mentioned oh, is yeah. actually, even though this it's not in chapter two, it's actually a way um, that 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 we can say is an embodiment of these peripheral um, subsidiary journeys um, that you were asking about um, in the sense that um, in it, these a lot of these stories are not about um, unlike the tale of Liwa, a lot of these stories are not about this uh, delayed success story. Um, they are more complicated than success stories, or they're alternative success stories, or sometimes they're outright outright failure stories of failure. Um, so what 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 I wanted to show the reader is that sometimes it takes a journey into Chang'an for a candidate or aspirant to get out of Chang'an. Um, in this case, the flower addict, um, uh, by by virtue of being in Chang'an in the in, in this um, in this cosmopolitan space, um, discovers something else about himself that is not quite the kind of talent that the examination system is vetting for. Um, and he, he discovers there's a resource. Um, this is a very strange story, but it, it is, it, it is it's a resource through his this parasite that has um, claimed his stomach for years um, that he had, had by virtue of this um, coming to um, uh, into the acquaintance of these foreigners, they're called Hu, uh, Hu um, it propels him onto actually a journey to the very edge of the empire, which is the the you know, well, it's not explicitly named, but it, it's it's somewhere on the on the on the on the south coast of of China. So basically, it propels him onto this sea journey. Um, uh, that then becomes the place where he finds an alternative livelihood that circumvents this examination system altogether. Um, so Chang'an plays, ironically, by being the center of uh, you know t- recruitment for talent, this whole tournament for talent, as Ben Elman calls it, um, it it also becomes this kind of launch pad for alternative um, sort of um, uh, unimagined um, uh, other livelihoods for for candidates and aspirants. And I find that really interesting as Ed, just almost more interesting than than its role in the examination system. Um, just, just, just by virtue of, it's not centripetal in that it's center-seeking, but it's also centrifugal. It goes outside, um, toward the edge. Um, mm-hmm. 
That's right. And, and the next chapter actually does this um, or takes us into this process even deeper, right? I mean, not, not as deep as into the ocean where we go with the far. I mean, I mean, really listeners, you have to read this. I mean, just to, uh, you know, I digress, but I have to digress. <laughs> they're at the, the um, ocean and they're, you know, refining the, the, uh, this creature that this guy has just vomited up that he's made like billions of dollars from, and, you know, the farmers are refining it. And then the guy's looking at the ocean and, you know, these, these strange wondrous beings are coming out of the ocean with these plates of jewels and the foreigners are like, ah, don't worry about it. You know, just, just ignore it. He's like, what? Like, why are you? Then uh, anyway, so I won't uh, give away the end of the story, but listeners will get the book and read it. It's, okay. it's fabulous. So as we move into the next chapter, um, you bring us into spaces in Chang'an um, that are where boundaries are being crossed, walls are being traversed, hierarchies are being leveled. Um, in some of these spaces, we have um, practices of disguise, of roguery, of deception, which include not just the emperor disguising himself um, as uh, just kind of a common person and walking around, but we have someone disguising himself as the emperor disguising <laughs> himself as an art person. So there's, there's all these layers, right, of transgression, and there's these layers of um, leveling of hierarchies. There's also um, a really interesting component to this chapter, though, where you bring us into a dimension of the city um, that, for me, was a really new way of thinking about and thinking with Chang'an, and that is the skyline. You bring our attention to the vertical dimension of Chang'an. So because, for me, um, I mean, this was such an innovative I'm um, just really fabulous way of making the city come alive for us. Can you talk a little bit about the verticality here um, of Chang'an? For you, what's most interesting about this aspect of um, the sort of lived experience of the city? Um, yeah, thank you for 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 that uh, again for that summary of. Um, what, you know, we, um, I've, uh, through the course of working on this, um, I've seen lots of different reconstructions of, of the, 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 the shape of, of Tang, Chang'an. And, and, uh, some of the readers might have, um, seen this also. It's variously called a, a tablet of chocolate or a chessboard. Uh, I like the tablet of chocolate reference better. Um, and, um, and we see, um, and again, this is, um, this is, uh, this is not trivial, of course, because because archaeology has meticulously um, tried to give us the outlines of the palaces, of the walls, of the wards, um, and this is, it's, this is it takes a lot of effort for us to to get to that point. Um, the limit of that is. Um, for better or for worse, is that that this tablet of chocolate or, or this map of uh, the reconstructed Chang'an um, is two dimensional. Um, it um, it gives. You know, the, the, we have the width and breadth, and unfortunately, um, not the third dimension. And so, um, I often found myself thinking, "Well, what, what if we were to sort of take this out of flatland? What, what happens?" Um, and um, I found some ways, um, imperfectly, of course, but um, some of the narratives, um, when read against the grain. Um, 
can can inform us um, as to at least how um, some of these writers envisioned the third dimension, the walls, um, the height of of the the Tsen pagoda um, in the southeast corner. Um, and so, um, and the the story that I, I I mentioned in the very beginning of, of the conversation uh, with the the knight errant, the female knight errant, um, that sort of so kind of fascinated me years and years ago involved this um, young woman who was eight, who, who just decided to steal a rich a merchant's rosary and decided to hide it on top of uh, the Tsen Pagoda, which is about 60 meters high. Um, so um, if we're going to talk about lived space, we have to talk about the, you know, the, 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 the walls and the verticality um, of how, what, um, what, what one sees when, um, when, when she lifts her head up toward the, the, the uh, the top of the code pagoda and what happens when you kick a ball over, <laughs> over a ward wall like what do you do um so it's it's a um and, and i hope other scholars will continue to think about this um this is only a very preliminary foray into this third dimension but um this is where i think the narratives actually really give us um uh, uh insights that um that a plain map of reconstructed map of Chang'an cannot i love that section of the book so much and it really does i mean in a way you are doing what um you're you're reminding us to look up <laughs> like figuratively and literally and that's really really helpful and we need that reminder Right. I mean, in general and specifically, we need to be reminded of that. And this is re- this is just a really beautiful, really helpful way of doing that um, in terms of how we understand lived space and how we understand these texts. Yeah. And I want to add that it's, um, you know, th- this need for looking up is not um, is not just for us, you know, living <laughs> in the 21st century with skyscrapers. I think um, we tend to overest- uh, underestimate the degree to which there's a height um, sort of there's a there's there, there are skyscrapers in every era. Right? It's it's only, you know, not, you know, not in absolute terms, but um but for every um, dollar in Chang'an, there is something that is that is beyond reach um, in the third dimension, and um, how people deal with that, um, how they imaginatively and practically deal with that, is fascinating to me. Um, so you mentioned walls, right, as being an important part of this, and this I think takes us really nicely into the second chapter, or in, into the next chapter, right? Um, the the next chapter, chapter four, staging talent in urban areas. Now, this is a chapter that looks at the importance for um, the man of letters that we've been looking at of demonstrating his talent in the public eye. And you look at what you call the theatricality of talent. Now, this chapter focuses on examination lore, and it shows us that the urban space of Chang'an is offering exam candidates opportunities to prove themselves out of the exam grounds, right? And what those um, outside spaces look like are very varied, but they include, um, among other things, writing on spaces that are not examination papers, writing on pagodas, writing on um, various kinds of materials, and writing on walls and doors. 
So because this is a really fascinating um, addition, I think, to the way we understand the materiality of writing, right? And you, you mentioned um, Chris Nugent's work. Um, we talked, um, I think now some years ago, right? <laughs> um, yes. But this is, this is, I think, for me, a really exciting aspect of um, historical and literary studies of China and beyond that we really need to pay more attention to. So writing on walls, writing on doors, writing on pagodas, Linda, what is exciting? <laughs> <laughs> you about that um, in terms of the work that you're doing in this chapter. Um, yeah, so you mentioned Chris Nugent, um, and he was uh, very in, in his work. He had very powerfully demonstrated how how alive uh, the, really the vitality of manuscript culture in terms of of um, the circulation of of poetry um, is that that that. We don't really, you know, we living in the, you know, depending on, you know, how you think of it, either in the print world or in the post-codex world, um, uh, sort of don't, we tend to forget or overlook. Um, and so with my, this chapter, what I wanted to um to bring into the conversation is the fact that um, in addition to those circulated manuscripts, to those orally um, circulated um, songs and, and lines, um, there's this kind of world of graffiti, if you will, um, in, in Tang Chang'an that played a very important part in people's self their own creation of their image um, and also the the modulation or the um, challenge to other people's creations of their images um, so um, having um, having a pagoda that 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 could be written on um, that was understood to be um, sort of the poster board for men of talent um, invites um, these men of letters during this very liminal part of their lives, or sometimes even after that, um, to show the world, <laughs> to show the uh, sort of the urban world, the spectators, um, what they're capable of. Um, and this 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 showing, this presenting, um, has very important consequences because among these spectators um, are potentially people who will be able to elevate you. Um, and again, this is one of the peculiarities of Tang examination system with, in, in the sense that um, it was much more open to influence um, by this, not just the examiner himself who makes this decisions, that there is this, this larger circle outside of the examiners um, who, who can influence um, his decision. And then beyond that circle, there's even a larger circle of sort of a popular sort of readership, um, probably made, made up mostly of men of letters, but a larger set of them um, who are able to propagate this kind of reputation. And this is, this is a kind of poetic reputation that um, that could also sway the inner circles. <laughs> so there's this really, in, you know, really dynamic sort of set of concentric circles of spectators who are looking at the walls, um, looking for signs of wit or signs of 
poetic prowess, um, and then for, for, for them to defend themselves and, and each other. So it's, this is why I say it's a spectator sport in some, in some ways. And this, the sport takes place not just on paper, um, but also in these urban features, these um, blank spaces in, 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 in the urban, urban uh, center um, that also require people to look up. <laughs> so, so, so this is, um, you, you've brought us into the importance of spaces um, that we might not necessarily look to um, when we look to spaces of self-making for these literati, as spaces of writing, right? Spaces of inscription. There's other um, spaces also that you bring us into toward the end of the book. Now, these are spaces that include some of the walls and some of the doors um, that the poems are being written on um, in chapter four. And these are spaces of the pleasure quarters. Now, chapter five takes us into the pleasure quarters of Chang'an in Pingkong Ward, and it, it explores it as a site and opportunity for the transformation of literati, right? Now, this is based on a close reading of vignettes from anecdotes from the Northern Ward, and those anecdotes allow us to see otherwise invisible flows of information, flows of desire, and flows of resources in the urban space of Chang'an. This is a totally fascinating chapter, and like the other chapters, we could speak about it for easily another hour. Um, So I just want to mark this, um, especially for listeners. Now, you're showing in this chapter, among other things, um, as you put it in this chapter, that in the Northern Ward, not just the literati mattered, but the courtesans really mattered. The lived spaces that they created and dwelt in really mattered. And the cost of the entertainments that were enjoyed by them and by the literati really mattered. You talk here about the ways that these different matters, right, in forms of mattering, are bound up with a discourse of romance. And the chapter takes us into the kind of identities that are formed according to relations of romance, the temporalities of this romance, and also some of the values that are created by and that help form this discourse of romance. So there are three cases that you bring us into um, that sort of close the chapter that talk about this sort of negotiation of value and values around romance. One case is a case of an elegant courtesan's posthumous disgrace, as you put it here. There's a thwarted marriage proposal that goes from the courtesan to the client. And there's also another story. Um, This is a story that's really fascinating from the perspective of these flows and networks of information. Um, And I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about it because the idea of locating and narrating and historicizing flows of information, right? And so these sort of networks of news, networks of desire, channels and flows very much hooks this story and what you're doing here up with, I think, a larger interest in the history and literature of itinerancy and flows and circulation um, and information in the sort of medieval and early modern period. So I think this is a story and this is your analysis of this story in particular is potentially um, of of really kind of wide ranging import um, if we hook it up into that um, larger narrative. So the tale of Zhang Juju. Linda, okay. what's the tale of Zhang Juju? And um, for you, what's important about this tale in this larger context? 
Um, okay, so the, 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 just briefly, the, the tale of Zhang Zhuzhu is, is one of the um, sort of more marginal stories in this larger collection of courtesan um, quarter uh, anecdotes about courtesans. And uh, but before I, I, I get into the sort of the nitty gritties, um, the the what. What the story is doing um, for me is to show um, it shows me anew that um, to talk about Chang'an, to talk about these this, these groups of people who 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 lived here um, is kind of it, it. You can think of you know it's, my book is a, is an attempt to try to capture uh, different forms of mobility. Um, that happen to converge at a certain point in space, in this case, um, in Chang'an at large. And then in this chapter, in this, in this ward or residential enclosure in particular. Um, and so um, not a lot of stories um, are, are so sort of scintillating with um, resources that demonstrate these kinds of mobilities. Um, the story of Zhang Zhuzhu is is one in um, sort of in the very sort of the soundbite <laughs> summary is that it's a it's a it's a it's a courtesan in the in the pleasure quarters who uh, by a series of very clever maneuvers um, manages to marry her um, her childhood sweetheart um, by leveraging the patronage of a wealthy client. Who, who is not a literatus, by the way, who is a, a wealthy client, uh, a merchant in the Ping Kong board. But this is, story, this is a story that's told from a perspective of um, the, the author of the collection, who, who is a literatus, um, who is an official, um, Sun Qi. Um, so we have um, multiple kinds of... Um, Attachments. Um, we have a literatus, a highly placed um, literatus, who is who is telling the story of, of the cleverness of a Ping Kong courtesan who manages to, in a way, um, um, find a, a romance outside of her profession. Um, so, what um, what I was trying to say with this story is that um, it tells us a lot about the kind of people who live there, um, who are not ordinarily um, what you expect to be characters or uh, features in literatus anecdotes. Um, and this is a, a particularly valuable glimpse for that reason into a larger set of sociality um, that that's playing out in this very by now we're, we're talking about a city within a city right um the, the city within a city um who are the players what are the stakes um and how much it costs mm-hmm. and then, so what are these flows of information like how do we how do we understand like what's going on with that part of the story because it seems like you know, there are, there are a number of people right now who are getting interested in a history, histories of and with news and mm-hmm. histories of and with information. So how does this story speak to, you know, inf- where's the information here and how might that speak to this larger conversation about flows of information and, and the kinds of sources that historians and literary scholars might look to in order to locate um, and understand historical flows of information? 
Yeah, so just coming out of um so the previous chapter was dealing with how literati manage their 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 sort of literary reputation by writing the right kinds of um verse at the right place um or to one up someone else by by writing witty commentary um on someone else's writing um and so here in the ping kong war what we see is that um uh, this was not the exclusive um, venue for um, for literati for for the male literati. Uh, the courtesans themselves um, were actively doing this too. Um, so, in the case of Zhang Zhuzhu, what um, the, the 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 heart of the story revolves around um, these alleyway ditties, these ditties that um, little children or some kind of youngsters, uh, they're not really described very in, in detail, but there's these scattered band of uh, sort of uh, roving children or adolescent who sing um, or, or chant ditties that contain crucial information about, in this case, um, who was sleeping with whom. Or who was actually um, pulling the wool over someone else's eyes? So, um, so the, the crucial exchange in this case um, first exposes um, the courtesan Juju as um, basically being unfaithful to the client um, that that the, the, the wealthy merchant who had wanted um, to to her to be become his concubine. So it's the alleyway band of Diddy chanters who first exposes this. Um, and then, um, the, the, the courtesan along with her lover and also with her, um, her household manages to, um, devise a way to, um, change the ditty in a minimal way, um, to be chanted back that then says, Oh, actually, no, this is not really the story. Um, and revises the information contained in the first ditty. Um, so what we see is we see this media machine being played out um, by very, um, very knowing uh, participants who understood that information or reputation um, uh, was is not necessarily only on paper, even on walls. Um, they are resident in the in the rhymes of the alleyway bands of uh, roving children, um, and that they were, you know, their success, um, which is analogous to the success that literati men were cultivating in themselves, is to to form the ultimate language, um, to rally the ultimate kind of language to describe themselves, to put themselves in the best light. Um, and so to see it taking place, to see it unfold in the very specific alleyway, um, to have it unfold in the mouth of of people rather than on, you know, as, you know, pen, you brush and ink um, is really fascinating. So what this actually brings us to, you know, toward our conclusion, and it also brings us to something that I just want to make sure that I mentioned that I really loved about the book, because it's, um, you know, you mentioned at the very beginning, and we've talked about this a little bit, 
how deeply the book is engaging with a really fundamentally interdisciplinary range of sources and range of ideas in manifesting its narrative and its story. But one of the things um, that I hope is clear to listeners, and that's certainly clear to me at this point in our conversation, is how much the book is speaking back in a similarly interdisciplinary way. We've just heard, even just in this no single story, uh, and we just you know talked about a couple of the many many stories in the book. The ways in which a really unusual kind of source, you know, a source from anecdotes from the Northern Ward uh, about, about Tang China, can speak to media studies, um, can help us understand a media machine, um, uh, thanks to Ali Sands <laughs> of Diddy Chanters, right, and can speak to information flows and histories of mobility. It's just a really imaginative way of reading sources, Linda, that helps the book also speak out and contribute interdisciplinarily just as much as it's, I think, gaining from its interdisciplinary source base. So um, thank you for that. And I just, I really appreciate that about the book. And I think it's important to see that. Oh, thank you so much. So as we get to the epilogue, and there's a brief epilogue in the book, and we don't have a whole lot of time to go into it in detail, but the epilogue does gesture out into um, some of the ways that the story changes after the Tong, right, in ways that might help us understand what's so distinctive about the period that we've just um, looked at in understanding Chang'an as a city of lived spaces. For you, um, are there any particular aspects of that brief discussion of what happens afterwards that you'd like to mention for listeners and, and that's important for you that listeners understand? Um. Yeah, so I um, it, it is a very brief epilogue, um, and uh, and I think um, it's brief because um, I I could by this point I feel like I can turn over um, <laughs> the, the 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 burden uh, or maybe not burden but the task of um, thinking about cities and mobilities um, to um, a, a large number of very active and very excellent scholars who are working. Um, in the Song and then in the in the later imperial eras, um, that have um, and and there you know and there have been wonderful flurry of books that have come out um, uh, about cities um, after the Tang, and um, so I, I feel like the <laughs> uh, the readers are in good hands after this point because. Um, uh, uh, Scholars are actively thinking about the different sources that are available um, for, you know, Song Dynasty Kaifeng, for 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 Luoyang, for um, for for cities like Nanjing, um, and um, so it, there's a wonderful horizon that opens up. Um, I would say the for the Tang, there's a there's a there's a challenge um, in the sense that there are not the same kinds and the same number quantity of sources um, that I you know I, that I, I feel very envious of <laughs> scholars working with um, later imperial. Um, cities um, for the range of sources they have. And so what um, my strategy has been with this book to to just try to get the most out of the sources that we have <laughs> um, um, and to do as much as we can um, and not think about what isn't there. <laughs> I mean, you think about it, but not to sort of mourn it too much. Um, yeah, so... 
Well, and there's a lot that is there, Linda, and there's a whole lot more that's there in the book than we had time to talk about, right? So there's a million, billion, gazillion things that we could have talked about that we didn't have a chance to get to. And I hope that listeners, um, having had a taste, right, of some of the exciting things from this conversation will, will turn themselves to the book and find all the other juicy fabulousness that's there. <laughs> in the meantime, is there anything in particular that you'd like to mention for listeners that we didn't um, actually have a chance to talk about? Um, that is important for you um, to let them know? Um, Nothing specific, but I'll just mention that um, one thing that has been really fun about working, so kind of continuing what I just said, um, that, you know, not to be too envious of other (laughs) scholars working in other cities, one thing that I really enjoyed um, is working with a period um, or working with terminologies that are still very vague. Um, so, um, so the, you know, a lot of things that, that, that have, um, shown up in the, in my book, um, requires explanations about, um, the incompleteness or in, um, stability of the terminology. So even with, um, you know, with the word narrative, with the word tales or, or xiaoshuo, uh, in Chinese or, um, chuanxi, or this is the set of, um, texts that's, um, translated as transmissions of the marvelous. Um, there's, uh, we work with a lot of terminology that require a lot of explanations. And the reason that they require explanations is that they were in flux. They were, um, they were actively sort of sometimes misused in the sense that they were used in ways that are not stable. Um, and to me, um, even though this is a nightmare, <laughs> um, even though this is a challenge, what one thing that I really that also perversely draw, perversely draws me to this set of um, sort of cultural practices that don't have really good names. Um, you know, uh, is that they're in flux. They're alive in a way that um, that 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 really invites us to to participate um, in this 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 process of coming to terms with them. Um, and so um, the reader might encounter a lot of terms. Uh, where they're called by different names um, and they're imprecise, um, uh, indecisive, or maybe um, some readers might wonder, hmm, really? Um, But I I think this is part of the magic uh, of working in this period um, is this vitality that comes from uh, a collective imagination that's still trying to um, accrete around something that was fairly new. So now that the book is out, um, and congratulations Thank on you. the book, what's next for you? What are you currently being inspired by, and what are you currently working on? Yeah, yeah, thank you for asking that. Um, I'm actually, I started to really get into maps <laughs> lately, um, I, um, and it's partially because um, in looking for, um, back when I was looking for a cover image for this book, <laughs> Um, I was wrestling with um, the, 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 the lack of maps in the tongue. Um, and that, that got me thinking about what it means to, 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 to think about spatial knowledge during a time when um, um, almost no maps survive. Um, so I'm working on trying to, um, 
understand writing about maps, about um, thinking maplessly about maps during the Tang, but also as a, as a larger project um, about the the development of spatial knowledge um, during this time, during late medieval China. Um, in not in terms of just in terms of maths, but in other kinds of cultural technologies. So, um, mm-hmm. so that that's been fun. Well, best of luck, uh, Linda, with that project, <laughs> and I will um, check back in with you when that's done, and we'll talk again. Thank you, thank so, you, standing, so much. standing offer. We'll have a we'll date in the future. Thank you thank so you. much. Um, it's really been a pleasure, and just thanks for giving us a book that's so wonderful, and thanks for giving me. An hour of your time, Linda. Um, thank you for this wonderful conversation. You've been listening to new books in East Asian studies. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>